Word of God, but it is the actual words of God that He's given to us. And, of course, in our church we believe that to be in the King James Version of, for English-speaking people, that uh, every word is exactly the one that God intended through the translation of uh, the King James translators and His divine aid in helping them. Um, and I'm thankful that when we teach something, we don't have to rely upon what our thoughts are. I'm thankful we can teach what the Bible says with authority and know that this is something that is established truth. It's not something that's my opinion or your opinion. It's something that God has taught. And um, the Bible teaches us very clearly that God is absolute holiness. In fact, uh, it refers to Him as light, and it says in Him is no darkness at all. You know, God created God created us to be perfect as well. And, of course, we all know the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, how they chose, willingly chose, to not live in that perfected state. They sinned against God. Because of that, the Bible tells us that death passed upon all men. Romans tells us, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And somehow in the day that we live, people hate the things of God. The society hates it. They hate the message of the gospel. And they, they accuse the gospel of being judgmental, of being legalistic, of being uh, God just inter, uh, intervening in the, the, the course of their life and not letting them live the life the way they want to. But the truth of the matter is the gospel is the greatest news they ever heard. Because what most people don't realize in this world today is we're already condemned. We're condemned because we're sinners. And Christ didn't come to condemn us. He came to save us from that condemnation. He came to give His life as payment for our sin. <coughs> Ephesians chapter 2 uh, really draws a distinguishing line between uh, different religions that are out there, different denominations that are out there. And in verses 8 and 9, the Bible says, For by grace are you saved. If I want to find out how I'm going to go to heaven, I don't want to trust what some guy's idea is or thought is. I want to hear what God says about it. I want to know what His plan is. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If we don't do it God's way, we're not going to make it. We're going to end up going to that place of hell and fire and, and what the Bible refers to as a, a literal place, a place of torment. We're going to end up going there not because God has sent us there, but because we've chosen not to put our faith in the grace that He has extended to us by giving us His own Son to pay for our sin for us. We willingly choose to do that. If we do not put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we have rejected His gift of eternal life. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace are you saved, through faith. And that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You can take every denomination, every religion in the world, you can divide them into one of those two categories. Works, meaning men has to work and earn their way to heaven. Or faith. Faith alone. And the Bible teaches, and what God says about it is, it's faith. It's faith alone. In fact, He says it's not by our works. By the keeping of the law, the Bible says, shall no man be justified. 
There's a lot of lot of religions out there that teach you you have to live your life this way in order to make it to heaven. And if you're not good enough, then you can do these things to make up for it. And they teach that there's some big scale in heaven that seems like that God weighs your good and your bad. And your hope and your goal would be to outweigh your good, your good to outweigh your bad. And that that would be the merit. That would be the, the thing that you lay at God's feet or bring to God's attention that, hey, I deserve this. I've earned it. We don't earn any of it. In fact, the Bible says the very best we have are righteousnesses, the Bible calls them, are as filthy rags. The best we can do, the, the very best works we can think of are nothing more than filthy rags in the eyes of God. Because He is so holy, He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And when Adam and Eve sinned, there was a breaking of fellowship between a holy God and now a sinful man. There had to be some remedy. There had to be some way for God and man to be reconciled again, to be able to come back into fellowship and be able to spend an eternity with a holy God. There had to be something that would allow us to be able to live with Him for eternity. So he came up with a plan. He said, yeah, I'm going to send my own son. John chapter 3, verse 16, one of the most famous verses most people know. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Notice it doesn't say that whosoever shall work for Him or labor for Him. It says whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation is not difficult. Salvation is simply trusting Christ. And saying, Lord, if I'm going to make it to heaven, I'm going to trust what you have done for me by dying on the cross for my sin, being buried, and raising again on the third day to pay for my sin for me so I don't have to pay for it. And He's promised to give us that freely. All we have to do is put our faith in it, to trust it. To say, yes, that's what I'm depending on to get me to heaven. It's not my works. It's not my church membership. It's not my baptism. I'm amazed at how many times... Even now, I hear people say, uh, I need to be baptized. And I'm like, well, have you trusted Christ as your Savior? Well, no, I don't know about that, but I want to be baptized. And their idea is that baptism is what saves them. That's not what saves them. What saves them is by trusting Christ. And if you've never been saved before, if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, it's not some big, big rigmarole. You don't have to make some big procession in the church and have everybody uh, come around you. It's a simple act of faith. It's a simple act of saying, Lord, I'm trusting You for my salvation, what You've done on Calvary for me. I'm putting my faith in that to save me from my sin and to forgive me of my sin and give me a home in heaven for all of eternity. I'm trusting that. I'm putting my faith in that today. That's that's as simple as it gets, folks. You, You can't get any simpler than that. If we could work our way to heaven we would lose it by having the fact that we were so prideful of it. Our works would have to be constant in order to stay in, in, in fellowship with God. But I'm thankful that because it's dependent upon Him, that I don't have to try to remain saved either. Once I've trusted Him as my Savior, it's now in His hands. It's now up to Him for me to stay saved. I hope and pray that everybody here has trusted Christ as their Savior. It doesn't matter what denomination you call yourself. It doesn't matter what church you belong to. What matters greatly is what does the Bible say about it, and have we done it. 
What does God say about it? Does He tell us how to go to heaven? Quite clearly. Quite clearly He does. And it's amazing. I was talking to a, a friend of mine, a dear friend of mine, uh, a few weeks ago, several weeks ago now. Uh, he's, he was raised Catholic, still a Catholic to this day. And uh, he was unsure of uh, this whole thing of works versus faith. And I shared with him, I said, look, I'll even take the Catholic Bible, the one they've changed to fit their, their doctrine. And I did. I took his Bible. And I showed him how even in his Bible it teaches that salvation is by faith without works. Isn't that amazing? God's plan is so simple, so easy. And yet so many people are angry at God, defiant at God, as if He's the one that has brought condemnation to them. As if He's the one that is the one sending them to hell. God's never sent anyone to hell. He made every, every uh, available means to uh, keep people from going there. If we go there now, it's our choice. It's our choice, not His. In fact, if you don't believe me on that, He even tells us in the Bible. He said, I am not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And I hope and pray that you're saved today. If you're not, that you get that matter settled. The most important thing you can do in your life is to trust Christ as your Savior. We don't have the guarantee of another moment. Not another moment. Last Thursday, I think it was, I got a text from Brother Keith. He said, Pastor, pray for me. My grandmother just passed away unexpectedly. Going through what most people would consider to be a fairly routine procedure in the hospital. And she died on the table, didn't make it off. They had no idea that morning when she went in that that was going to be her last day on earth. We don't have the guarantee that we're going to have another sunrise to view. If we're sitting here saying, well, I'll, I'll deal with those things later. I'll deal with that when I get older. I'll deal with that when, I, when I've finished my life and I've finished my career and I'm retired. I'll deal with those things later. We don't have a guarantee of another day. We must make sure that we're saved today. The Bible talks about a rich man who died without trusting Christ as his Savior, without having faith in him. And the Bible says that he went to hell, and in hell he lifted up his eyes in torments. Real place, literal place. He said, My tongue is tormented in this flame. All he wanted for relief was a drop of water. Just one drop. He said just even a drop would be a relief. Very real place. When, when he was speaking to the other man who had trusted Christ, Lazarus, and asking if he could come and bring a drop of water to him, Lazarus said there's a great gulf fixed between us. Those of us that would go to you, we can't do that. And those of you that would come here, you can't do that. Once a man is saved, once a, or once a man uh, dies in this life without Christ, he doesn't have another chance. There are people that teach, denominations that teach, well, once you go to uh, die and you go to this place that's kind of a holding place until people work you out of there. No, the Bible doesn't teach that. You'll find that nowhere in Scripture. Nowhere. Your choice must be made before you die. Your eternal destination must be made in this life. Your choice must be to Christ now. 
And I hope and I pray that everybody here has trusted Christ as their Savior. I'm not telling you to become a Baptist. I'm not telling you to become a Methodist or a Plymouth Brethren or a Mormon or any of these other places. I'm saying you need to trust Christ as your Savior. That is the thing that must be done in this life in order to know that you're on your way to heaven. And uh, I'll tell you this, there's a great comfort that comes from that. There's a great peace to know that you're on your way to heaven. Be able to go to sleep at night and not wonder. I remember as a young person, I was probably about uh, uh, 12 years old. I know how old I was. 12 years old and just moving out. I just probably turned 13, but it started almost a year earlier. And I remember having nightmares. I remember waking up in the middle of the night thinking that I was going to be left behind. I was going to be here to go to hell with other people, and my family was going to heaven. I'd wake up just scared to death, scared to death. And I'd grown up in a pastor's home. And I had prayed a prayer when I was little. I remember praying a prayer, but I didn't know what I was doing. And finally, at 13 years of age, I, I finally realized I need to make a decision for Christ myself. I can't depend on the fact that my mom and dad are Christians or that I go to church all the time, or that I live a pretty decent life because mom and dad didn't let us do hardly anything to get in trouble. And I realized I had to get saved. I had to trust Christ as my Savior. I'll tell you what, I made that decision. I've never been the same since. Now, there's been times I've been closer to the Lord and times I've been further away from the Lord since then, but my life has been distinctly changed since that time. There's been a difference there. And I'm thankful that I can go to bed at night and rest easy knowing that if Christ were to return before that night is over, if I were to stop breathing in the middle of the night and be called into eternity, I can rest easy knowing I'm going to be with my Savior for the rest of eternity in heaven. And there's a great peace that comes from that. That's not our message this morning. But from time to time, I want to make sure that every person knows that it is not belonging to Keith the Heights Baptist Church that will get you to heaven. It's not going to do it. It's not having the greatest pastor, the best looking pastor in the world that's going to get you to heaven. Although you have that. I don't mean to make light of it. But folks, I'm telling you, if you're trusting anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ, you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it. You must put your faith, your trust in Him, and Him alone. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, turn to Jeremiah chapter 8. Now that we've preached one message, we'll have another one, okay? Jeremiah chapter 8. We spent some time this morning in Sunday school in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the greatest prophet of Judah. Uh, Out of all the prophets that had been a prophet to Judah specifically, he's referred to as the greatest one. He's also known as the weeping prophet, a man who was so burdened for his people. He would weep and had a heart for them. A number of times he was frustrated at the fact that the nation of Judah was not listening to what God was saying. 
By the way, there's always that frustration, isn't there, even in this day? You wonder why more people don't listen to what God has to say. He's frustrated, and there are several times he even tries to resign from being a prophet and tries to quit, and God won't let him. And it burns inside of him. He's just got to get out there and tell the, the folks what God has said. I'm thankful for his consistency. Look with me, if you will, in chapter 8, verse number 5. Uh, let's back to verse 4, and we'll get a running start into it. Moreover, thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord. And by the way, any time we find that phrase in Scripture, we really ought to perk our ears up a lot. I understand that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and I understand that. But there are times when God spoke verbally to these men and was very emphatic to make sure that the person who was listening knew that it was specifically from God. And the emphasis is placed here, uh, not that we doubt that any of Scripture is not from God, we understand that. But he puts the emphasis here, lest we forget, thus saith the Lord. Here's what he says, Shall they fall and not arise? Shall he turn away and not return? Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back by a perpetual backsliding? They hold fast deceit. They refuse to return. I hearkened and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Everyone turned his, to, his own course, to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. Yea, the stork in the heaven knoweth her appointed times, and the turtle and the crane and the swallow observe the time of their coming. But my people know not the judgment of the Lord. How do ye say we are wise, and the law of the Lord is with us? Lo, certainly in vain may he it. The pen of the scribes is in vain. The wise men are ashamed, they are dismayed and taken Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord, and what wisdom is in them. Therefore will I give, to their wives, give their wives unto others, and their fields to them that shall inherit them. For every one from the least, even unto the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone dealeth falsely. For they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Father, we pray that You'll bless the message. And Lord, may we do justice to bring about the truth that is given here. And while I know and I understand that this is written to the nation of Judah, the two tribes of the southern kingdom of Israel, there is so much about Your heart in regards to this that we can learn in our day, in our, our age, how You deal with people, how your heart longs for them to be obedient to you. And so, Father, help us, I pray, to rightly understand your Word, to rightly teach it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you look with me in verse number 5, a question is asked. It says, Why then is this people of Jerusalem slidden back? There's three things that are spoken of here in verse number 5. I want us to look at very quickly. <coughs> One of them is that the people of Jerusalem, and understand, at the time of this writing, there were ten tribes that were referred to as the northern tribes, and they were separated. They were known as Israel. They kept the name of Israel. There were two tribes that had separated after the time of Solomon, 
and uh, took their own king, and known as the southern tribes, and their capital was Jerusalem. They kept the holy city and the, the, the uh, city of Jerusalem as their capital. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, and they uh, were referred to as the nation of Judah. And Jeremiah here is speaking primarily to Judah, although he uh, is referring to, I believe, Israel as a whole, God's people as a whole, but is speaking primarily as a word of warning to Judah. And in verse 5, he deals with three things. He says, first of all, he says this people of Jerusalem is slidden back. Notice what he says here and the way he words this. He says, by a perpetual backsliding. This, this word perpetual means a continuous or a, a continuing down this slope of, of backsliding. We're not talking about the nation making a mistake or sinning once and repenting of it and having a conscience about it, but a, a nation that is given to backsliding, to getting away from the Lord, to drawing further away from God. There are two things that take place in each instance, both in Israel in the northern kingdom and in Judah in the southern kingdom, there are two things that cause the people to depart from the Lord. One of them is they begin to intermarry and mix with the heathen nations that are around them. They begin to become what the Bible refers to as unequally yoked together. Uh, they had people that were uh, deniers of God, people that worshipped other idols and other gods, that lived and surrounded them, and always they would fall into these traps by intermingling. They would give their sons and their daughters to intermarry with these other nations. By the way, there's a lesson to be learned in that. As God's people, we have no business pursuing those that are of the world, those that are not saved, those who do not name the name of Christ as someone that we would consider to be a life's mate or a spouse. Because it always seems to be the downturn of the spiritual well-being. This nation would begin by intermixing in their marriages <coughs> spiritually with people that believed in a different God. And secondly, uh, it was not long after that that the idols of the people that they had intermingled with began to creep into their households. And so idolatry would come into the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was supposed to have only one God, were they not? In fact, that's one of the first commandments that was given. Thou shalt have no other God before me. I am the only God. I am the God of Israel. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God had made a covenant with Israel and said, If you will obey me and you'll follow me and you'll let me be your God, He said, I will be a God unto you. I will defend you. I will be your God. I will, I will take care of you. I'll provide for you. I'll bring blessings on you. But the nation of Israel, time and time and time again, would begin to intermix. And that, that, that always seemed to be the thing that was the catalyst that brought the idolatry into the country. It's so important that we're careful who we intermingle with. It's so important that we're careful the environments we put ourselves into. You say, well, uh, can't I belong to, uh, can I have, be out in the world and around the world? You can, but you can't do it without it having some impact on you. You can't do it without it having some kind of a, 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 an, a, an abrasiveness to you. And there will always be some influence that is given on your life. So we must be careful of it. We must guard against it. Notice what it says here in verse 5. These people were slidden back, the, the folks in, in Judah and specifically in Jerusalem, slidden back by a perpetual backslide. Notice, secondly, they hold fast to their deceit. They had become, in their backslidden condition, they had become deceitful. 
Not only were they deceiving others, but they were even deceiving their own hearts and saying, we're okay. Understand what was taking place during this time. It's very important because this statement in verse 5 is in reference to this. There was another prophet on the scene during this time. His name was Hananiah. Hananiah was in good, good favor with the three wicked kings that were served, that, that Jeremiah served under. And he was the one that these kings would seek after his opinion. And he claimed to be a prophet of God. And he would always come forward and he would tell the kings what the kings wanted to hear. But he would not tell the kings, thus saith the Lord. And the kings liked him. And they brought him into the kingdom. And and Hananiah was a a well-known prophet and the people liked him. And, And he would tell them, listen, everything is okay. You're living this way, God understands. God's okay. He's not going to do anything. You know what? We're living in prosperous times right now. Life is good. You know, you have some idols. I know that. And God knows that. He understands. He knows your heart. And this is the kind of thing that Hananiah was saying. By the way, we hear men like that today, don't we? Well, it's okay. You can live your life however you want. God understands. And as long as He knows your heart, that's all that matters. No, no. Because there was something going on that God said, I can't handle that. I can't tolerate that. Jeremiah comes forward and says, Thus saith the Lord. And he is persecuted for it. Hananiah hates him so badly that he takes Jeremiah and he throws him into a cistern to try to kill him. Not because Jeremiah had done something wrong, but because Jeremiah was bold enough to stand up and say, That's not what God says. This is what God says. Verse 5, He says they're slidden, they're backslidden in a perpetual backsliding. They're continuously going down this road. They're hearing this thing from, from Hananiah, that this deceitfulness that they're deceiving not only themselves, but they're trying to, to smooth over their wrongdoing by saying everything's okay. God's okay with this. Obviously, the land at that time was prospering. And they were living in idolatry, so it can't be that God's angry at us or there wouldn't be prospering going on, would there? And they deceived themselves and they deceived one another. And Hananiah was one that was responsible for this. And I want you to notice also in verse number 5, the Bible says this, they refused to return. Three things that characterized this generation that was in Judah. They were in a perpetual mode of backsliding. They were, they were resolved in their own deceit. We're not going to change. We believe this, and I don't care what Jeremiah says, this is what I believe. Isn't it amazing how many times we hear people say, I know what the Bible says, but here's what I believe. They're resolved in their deceit. And they re- refuse. They refuse with a rebellion, with the gritting of their teeth. And while they may do it with a smile on their face and say, I'm not rebelling against God, it's just where I stand on the issue. The truth is they're refusing to repent. They're refusing to return in verse number 5. And these are the three things that are marking the people of God during the time of Jeremiah, who's speaking here in chapter number 8. Now, I want you to understand and notice some things that are spoken of here where God comes to the people and He says, listen, even things of nature know 
that there are some things that, that are just understood. There, there are things that ought to be right. There are things they have to, that, that, that are just the course of nature. They ought to be understanding. And he said, this people doesn't even know the judgment of God. In verse number 7. So he asked the question in verse 8. And I want us to look at verse 8 very quickly here. How do you say we are wise and the law of the Lord is with us? You see, that's what Hananiah had been saying. He was saying, we have the wisdom of God. And everything is doing fine. And God is with us in our idolatry and in our undone condition of intermingling with these heathen nations that were around us. He says, God is with us during this time. And, and, and Jeremiah says, how do you say that? Notice in verse 8, he says, Lo, certainly in vain... Made he this state? Made he it? This statement that he's making? Made he it? The pen of the scribes, the ones that are writing about this, it's in vain because it is not so. God is not okay with this. Jeremiah is saying, the wise men are ashamed; they're dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected. Word of the Lord. If you're in the habit of underlining in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline that phrase. They have rejected the Word of the Lord. And what wisdom is in them? Can I tell you this? The, the road to perpetual backsliding. I'm not talking about the occasional, I messed up, I had a moment of weakness. I'm talking about perpetual backsliding, living a life that is consistently, no matter what speed it is, whether rapid or slow, there is a consistent movement away from the things of God rather than toward them. It always begins with a rejection of God's Word. That's where it starts. Isn't it amazing that one of the great tactics in the last hundred years that Satan has used to get Christians and people that name the name of Christ to drift into sin and worldliness has been to defile our Scriptures. To cause men to get, get words of Scriptures that have been retranslated or given better translations according to what man says. And they have rejected the things that God has said. These other, these other uh, translations of Scripture, if you can even call them that, change what is said in them. They cause doctrine to be taught differently than our King James Bible does. And as a result, men and women, sometimes even ignorantly so, are rejecting God's Word simply because they don't hold it in their hands. They hold a counterfeit. And by the way, Think all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When, when the serpent tempted Eve, he asked her, Yea, hath God said? And Eve tells him what she believed God had said. A little different than what God did say. I think Adam was at fault there, perhaps, but we'll know when we get to heaven one day. And the serpent said, Ye shall not surely die. What did he do? He allowed there to be some of God's Word, but he defiled what God actually said. He changed it and caused Eve to be deceived by it. 
The Word of God is rejected. The downward spiral of perpetual backsliding begins, and it's not long before the deceit, self-deceit, begins to creep in. Why? Because we do not have a sure word. We do not have an absolute authority. We do not have a rock. We do not have a truth that is unmovable that we can come back to and say, I believe this, and it's an unshakable belief because it's on the right foundation. We've, we've undermined the authority. And now the only authority we can have is what do I think about it? What do I believe about it? And can I tell you this? That is no authority at all. I'll be real frank with you. If you know your heart the way that I think I know my heart, I wouldn't trust my heart as far as I could throw it. There is no authority in what I think. There's absolute authority in what God's Word says. Now I can teach a truth. Now I can be dogmatic about it. Now I can be bold about it. Now I can proclaim it to others and say, I know it to be truth because it's not mine. It's God's. And He is perfect. And He is without darkness at all. None. There's no imperfection in Him. They reject the Word of God and it puts them on this downward spiral of backsliding, this perpetual backsliding. Causes deceit to creep into their hearts and it's not soon before the Bible teaches that they refuse to return. Notice he asks the question, and what wisdom is in them? God says, therefore, because you've chosen this path, you've made your choice, God tells His people, He says, therefore will I give their wives unto others, their fields to them, and shall inherit them for every one from the least even to the greatest is given to covetousness. These people were living in prosperous times. They were being told by a false prophet, even though we are in idolatry, God is, God is here. He's with us. He's prospering us. He's blessing us. Peace. Peace. Everything's calm. Everything's right. The rulers love to hear that. Can I tell you this? The people love to hear that. By the way, look around at our churches today. They don't teach on sin. They teach on it's okay to have worldliness. You know what? God understands. They say peace. Peace. You don't have to be under conviction. Oh, no, 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 no. If the Holy Spirit convicted you, uh, that, that must have been a mistake. Because God understands. That's what they teach today, do they not? You go to churches today, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, not only is it not felt, it's never even taught about. The, the fact of, of understanding the sinfulness and wickedness of sin and how it offends an Almighty God that's holy and just, it's never even taught about in our pulpits today. And so we have churches that make people feel good. They do just like Hananiah. They come before the king and say, it's okay. You don't have to listen to that nut down the road. I mean, I know he's saying judgment's coming. God's, God's going to judge some things. You don't have to listen to him. Look at how prosperous we're living right now. I mean, things are good, right? That's what Hananiah is saying. Notice what he says here in verse 10, and this is God's response to it. He says, I'm going to give their wives to others. I'm going to give their fields to them that shall inherit them. They're not going to labor for it. There's going to come a captivity. And they're going to haul off the wives, and they're going to haul off the children, and they're going to conquer the land. 
And Babylon is going to come very soon and conquer Judah. And God's going to bring judgment upon the nation of Judah. Why? I want you to notice this. And here's our message this morning, and I want you to please don't miss it. For everyone from the least, even unto the greatest, is given to covetousness. From the prophet, even unto the priest, everyone <coughs> dealeth falsely. That's a pretty strong statement from Jeremiah. I mean, he is a prophet. Can you imagine why Hananiah doesn't like him? Does it kind of click in our minds when you hear something like this from Jeremiah, which God gave to him to tell them? Does it kind of click in our minds why Hananiah so persecuted him and could not stand him? I mean, Jeremiah called him a liar. He said, you deal falsely. You're a false prophet. <coughs> By the way, churches that do stand for the truth and right, not a lot of people like them. There's not a lot of people running to them and say, oh, what a great church that is. But it's still needful. For they have healed, look with me, verse number 11, for they have healed the hurt of the daughter of my people slightly. Saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. We're living in a world where we have a lot of religion in the United States of America. We have more churches probably per capita than any other country in the world. We have men that stand in pulpits with thousands and sometimes tens of thousands of congregants coming to their building only to hear peace, peace. And there is no peace. God's hand of judgment is near. I believe in many ways is already beginning. These folks that claim to be prophets, that claim to be the ones that are there to heal the hurt of the people, Jeremiah said you've healed them slightly. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Notice verse 12, it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? Nay. There was no embarrassment of it. They had become so cold and calloused in the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God upon their lives to live holy and clean and righteous that they were not even ashamed when they did wrong. The term gets thrown around all the time anymore and I get so tired of the misuse of it. And the term is legalism. I don't know how many times I've heard people say, well, that church is just legalistic. There are some that are. I'll, I'll give you that. But let me make sure we understand this. Saying you have to follow a pattern of standards in order to be saved and go to heaven, that's legalism. But having standards just because you are saved, that is not legalism. That's living godly in Christ Jesus. That's walking in the Spirit. That's fellowshipping and growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ day by day. 
Lord willing, in the afternoon hour, I'll be teaching on standards. God will give us the liberty to be able to do so in the, the time frame to do it. I would encourage you, if you don't normally stay for the afternoon service, please stay for this one. I think it will be a help to us. Neither could they blush. Notice verse 12. Therefore shall they fall among them that fall in the time of their visitation. They shall be cast down, saith the Lord. <coughs> Jeremiah goes on through this chapter. You can take time to read it later. Of all that God says that's going to happen to the nation of Judah. Notice what he says here as we get to the end of chapter number 8. Look in the very last verse. The question is asked, is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Why then is not the health of the daughter of my people recovered? Because those that should be the physicians, those that are to be responsible for the balm of God's Word, that is the healing salve, if you will, the balm that is used to heal the hurt, (coughs) has been mishandled. These false prophets have healed them only slightly. They've only given portions of God's Word, the things that that's tickled their ears, that sounded good to them. But they left out the things that were the healing power of God's Word. In verse number 9. I'm sorry, verse number 22 of chapter 8. Jeremiah is consumed by this. I want you to understand the heart the burden in which he's preaching these things to the nation. He's not doing it because he's angry at his, at his brothers and sisters in Judah. He's not doing it because he thinks he is better than them. He's not doing it to say, look how good I am and how wicked you are. That's not his purpose. He does boldly proclaim these truths because he loves his people and because he longs for God to be that healing balm to them. He gets to chapter 9 and he says, Oh, that my head were waters and mine eyes fountains of tears, that I might weep day and night for the slain of the daughter of my people. This isn't the sound of a man who's vindictive, who's mad, who's judgmental of his people. It sounds like a man who knows the truth of God, who knows the coming judgment of God on the wickedness of his people. And he's wondering why they won't listen. And he's broken hearted over it. He's proclaiming it as loudly, as boldly, and as often as he can. He says, Oh, that I had in the wilderness a lodging place of wayfaring men, that I might leave my people and go from them, for they be all adulterers, an assembly of treacherous men. And they bend their tongues like, like bow, like their bow for lies. Notice this. There's some things that characterize these spiritual leaders that were supposed to be. That are supposed to be the ones responsible for bringing the balm of Gilead, the truth of God, to the heart of the people. Notice what it says. They bend their tongues like their bow for lies. But they are not valiant for the truth. You know what America needs today? There needs to be some men of God and some women of God that will stand up in our churches and be valiant for the truth. Notice it says this, for they proceed from evil to evil. And I believe this is probably one of the most condemning statements of Scripture regarding a religious leader, a man who claimed to be a prophet, a man who claimed to be the one responsible 
to have the healing balm of God's Word at their disposal. And it says this about them in verse number 3, And they know not Me, saith the Lord. I think there are men in pulpits today, I believe this, I believe there are many of them that know not the Lord. And they stand in the pulpits and they please the ears of the people by saying, peace, peace. It's okay to live the way you're living. Our society has become accepting of these wickednesses and these sins. We need to, we need to follow along as our church. I mean, we don't want to be different than the world. Uh, we, we don't want to be offensive to anyone. Listen, I'm not for this. I am not, and please don't misunderstand me. I am not at all desirous of being offensive to anyone. I am not. But I refuse to compromise on the moral law of a holy God. And if men are offended by that, then they will have to be offended. I think these things can be taught, as Jeremiah taught them, with rivers of tears, with a brokenness for the people. Not in condemnation. Not in a judgmental attitude of the fact that I am more arrogant or better than someone in this world. But because my heart is so burdened for them. Because we find that there are churches all over our country that are changing what their position is on the moral laws of nature because they follow what society claims to be the new norm rather than going back to God's Word and saying, but what does God say about it? May God help us here at Kepha Heights Baptist Church to be steadfast and unmovable on what God's Word says. We do not have to be unkind. I cannot emphasize that enough. But we must be bold. And we must be steadfast. And with a broken heart, we need to make sure that this world understands and knows. We need to be willing to proclaim. Look with me, if you will, in verse 13 and we'll be done. Chapter 9 and verse 13. And the Lord saith, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, neither walked therein, but have walked after the imagination of their own heart, and after Balaam, which their fathers taught them. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will feed them, even this people, with wormwood, give them water of gall to drink. It will be bitterness at the end of it all. The nation of Judah, they don't see it coming, but it's right on the horizon. Already Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire is sweeping across the country, conquering. The instrument God is going to use to bring bitterness, to bring sorrow. And folks, that's not His desire. 
God's promise to Israel is, if you'll be my children and let me be your God, I'll be a God unto you. I'll bless you. I'll bless them that bless you. I'll bless them. That, I'll curse them that curse you. He promised Israel. He said, "I'll be your defender. I'll I'll make sure that you're safe. I'll give you a land that's flowing with milk and honey that you didn't even work for." That's what God desired, but they refused. They did not hearken. Folks, we're living in a day where a lot of people know what the Bible says. A lot of them do. I've met unsaved people that can quote Scripture better than some Christians. They refuse to take heed to it. They refuse to listen to it. And they miss out on the greatest joy in life. That of loving God with all their hearts. And being the reciprocate, the receiver of His love for us. And as a result, they're going to live with bitterness. And their end, the Bible says, is going to be an end of destruction. Now, folks, I don't want to see that. God doesn't want to see that. I know that those that are sitting here do not want to see men go to destruction. Our heart's desire is that they understand the truth of God's Word. And that they put their faith and their trust in Him. And allow Him to be a God to them. Allow Him to be the blessing that He so longs to be to us. Are we, are we in a place where even in our lives the question has to be asked, is there no balm in Gilead? Those who have the healing balm of God's Word, where's it at? The daughters of my people are suffering. We've healed their hurt slightly because we've not taken the balm and applied it to them. Even religious leaders, sad to say many who name the name of Christ, are guilty of this. Not taking the gospel to a lost and dying world. Not boldly proclaiming the truth that this book teaches. Making sure our world knows it. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. And Lord, even though I understand Jeremiah is speaking directly to Israelites in the nation of Judah, I also understand that Your heart, the way that You view these things, is consistent throughout history, 